Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sine Janol. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Rachel E. Gross to talk about her new book, Vagina Obscura and Anatomical Voyage. Rachel is an award-winning science journalist based in Brooklyn. She studied English literature at UC Berkeley and received a master's in science journalism from the Middle School of Journalism. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, National Geographic, Wired, New Scientist, Slate, Undark, and NPR, among others. Her first book, Vagina Obscura and Anatomical Voyage, is forthcoming from uh, Norton & Company in March. Um, Vagina Obscura tells the story of how early anatomists mapped our lady parts and how a new generation is resting and back. Rachel, great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Sine, and thank you for that introduction. Um, so I just want to first talk about, so it's a great book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. So uh, I want to ask you, uh, how did you come up with the idea to write this book? Thank you. Um, it was a maybe four years back now, I was working as a science editor at smithsonian.com. And I was noticing some interesting patterns in the coverage I was doing. So I started a column that was on unsung women in science. And it was these in-depth profiles of historical women who had transformed their fields and some of the challenges they were up against in their era. And then at the same time, I was doing a lot of coverage on reproductive biology and um, animal sex, one of my favorite topics. Uh, We would do like the history of the IUD. And I was realizing that a lot of reproductive biology and reproductive medicine centered on women was really behind. And the women in science stories were showing me that basically every time a woman or someone with a different background entered the field, they were asking all these different questions that had really been missed by a lot of people before them. So them being blocked in many ways from being part of the conversation was preventing those questions from being asked. So I was putting those two things together and realizing that the lack of research on women's bodies was really intimately tied to the lack of women in science. That is quite an interesting observation. So because we all have, let's say, our own experience and so on. And if you basically just monochromatically have just one type of person doing this research, it makes sense that basically the research comes out also quite like, I don't know, like a single uh, same type of research. The focus is always the same. 
So uh, that was your observation. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think it is more accepted and understood now that science is never a view from nowhere. You're always going to bring certain politics and attitudes and beliefs into the lab with you. But I feel like that wasn't always the case. There was often a claim to objectivity that the knowledge that these earlier scientists were putting out was really the objective truth about how the world works. And it was you know, very clear to me that they had these limited biased lenses of their own. Um, yet because they were often white men, they were considered kind of just the norm, just uh, they didn't have any biases. It was really when people with different backgrounds came in that they were bringing a lot of um, their own baggage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, one thing, so we will go now into the uh, specific topics, but overall it was quite shocking to me to see also somebody who has also studied to be a scientist, how, you know, you expect this objectivity. You think data is data, you know, you have to uh, devise clever experiments with controls and everything. And then, or you do observations, you know, without this much being affected by your own biases or social values. And then what comes out is, you know, It is the fact. That's actually what science is. We think it's okay. It's the fact. So I was page after page quite shocked reading your book. Oh, wow. Like, how could they get this all so wrong? And, you know, while they could do so much, you know, research and and understand these, um, uh, like, anatomical parts, basically. Right. Especially with a field that you think of as something that doesn't really change. Like, we're literally just looking at body parts and describing them and taking pictures or drawing them or labeling them, right? So how can you insert bias into that? Um, but yeah, like uh, like as you read, there were just these wildly unbelievable stories in history, like um, when Antony von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, he looked at sperm for the first time under the lens And he was absolutely convinced that he saw folded up human beings in the head of each sperm. And therefore, sperm carried the human essence and it just unfolded in the female, which fit really well with this idea that uh, men provided the seed and women provided the soil. And that's how reproduction was often looked at in that time. Mm -hmm. Really unbelievable. So let's actually dive into it because there were really so many interesting um, uh, body parts that you that you go through. So um, one is uh, that you start with actually is clitoris. So and this is so fascinating to me because basically, who like whoever has one, well, most of most of the people who have one basically do know this is a source of pleasure. Yet this is a debated topic. <laughs> You would think somebody would be like tapping them on the shoulders and say, hey, by the way, you know, I can tell you what's going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you it's hard to imagine how debates went on for so long about whether women and other people even had a clitoris and then what it was for, whether it was like had a urinary function um, or was maybe important to female sexuality, but we're not sure. Um, so yeah, one of my favorite little moments in the birth of modern anatomy in the 1500s was when you had several anatomists, but um, best of all, one literally named Columbo, who was arguing that he had discovered the clitoris. And if anyone else claimed to have discovered it, well, they were lying. And that he wanted to name it Amor Veneris or the love of Venus, because he realized it was uh, 
the center of women's pleasure and that fluid flowed out of it when they became excited or something. Um, and the other anatomists were like, no, it only exists in hermaphrodites, whatever that meant. Um, so yeah, these debates were raging for centuries. Um, and it's quite recent that we fully mapped the clitoris with modern tools and kind of that, that understanding has gone a bit more mainstream, even though people were doing that work many centuries ago, it just never caught on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was the whole time basically um, shaped by the social factors and, and beliefs. And one thing, uh, one main theme you keep coming back to, and this exists in Greeks, well, maybe originated there, and then Freud repeats it. It's always about uh, how a female body and sexuality, everything is inferior uh, to the male ideal. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how that derailed the whole uh, scientific search into <laughs> how, how clitoris works? What is it for? And uh, everything. Yeah, yeah. So I do follow that exact thread about women being kind of an inferior foil to man or being kind of the the flawed copy of man and man being like the ideal. Um, I mostly follow it through Western medicine. And I should mention that there are actually some really insightful and beautiful um, texts about the clitoris and its part in pleasure um, in Indian and Chinese texts, but they were mostly like erotic books. Um, and I was mostly looking at anatomical sciences. Um, so basically this, this idea kept repeating, like you're saying, um, especially with some of the Greeks like Galen, who described female body as being an inside-out male. So the vagina or uterus was an inside-out penis, and the ovaries were inside testicles, and, and they were literally just called female testicles. They had no name. Um, and that these were all kind of, they compared it to mole's eyes, so they were kind of the flawed, not really working well versions of the male. Um, but if you have that model, there's no room for the clitoris because you have already decided what is the homolog to the penis. It's the vagina in that case. So it was really about the frame they came to the research with and how that blocked them from looking into all the other stuff that was there. Um, and then, right, so I do get into Freud a lot, which I did not expect to do writing this book because he was a psychoanalyst. He was trained as a neurologist, so he had medical training before, but none of his work on female sexuality is scientific, I would say. Um, so I did not expect him to play such a big role in this book, but I found out that his ideas really seeped into like the fields of gynecology and medicine at large in such a major way that he had to be accounted for. Um, and one of his big theories that really stuck around for a long time was that women had kind of like their genitalia was split in half and they could either have vaginal orgasms or clitoral orgasms. And not only did he separate female sexual experience, but he judged each one. So he made a hierarchy saying that clitoral orgasm was immature and infantile. Vaginal orgasm was mature. And to become a mature woman, you had to transfer your orgasm from your clitoris to your vagina. And imagine all of this in scare quotes, because it's completely absurd. Um, and I don't even know where he came up with this stuff, honestly. I don't think he was asking women. Um, but that really shaped investigations into female sexuality and orgasm. And it definitely impacted thousands and thousands of patients of his and his followers 
who now believe that they were inadequate or not full women because they couldn't have this specific sexual experience, which later scientists would say, would realize was a biological impossibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, actually, then this is, let's say, again, a theme in many topics, actually, we will come uh, come to endometriosis also a little bit later. In so many ways, women are told that their experience is not valid, and it should be completely different, and it should fit to a certain box. So this is also something that keeps repeating in the um, uh, in in the book, and I mean, why not also delve into it now? So endometriosis, this actually is again a condition that we're finally, I think, only very recently accepting. While women were suffering from this for quite a long time, isn't that right? Oh yes, I mean, I think there's evidence from really early times, like just a few hundred AD. Um, of conditions that look remarkably like endometriosis um, or other menstrual disorders. And actually, I would say Freud is really related to this because he really got hysteria off the ground, This the, um, the psychological concept of hysteria as saying you can have physical pains and problems, but they're all related to psychological issues in your past, and you need to work through the psychological issues to address the physical pain. And that kind of diagnosis has obscured real menstrual disorders for centuries. Um, And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who are diagnosed with endometriosis, but when they first went to doctors, they were immediately given an antidepressant and told to find a therapist. And one woman who's actually in the book, she's a bioengineer who's now um, kind of investigating the origins of endometriosis, but her doctor in the 80s told her she was rejecting her femininity. And that's why she was suffering. um, Because endometriosis was thought of as the career woman's disease that happened when you didn't have children. And you were too focused on your career. And you were anxious, neurotic, and usually a white woman. And this was codified in textbooks as late as the 90s. And that also means, I also mentioned white woman's disease, this also basically means that um, if a basically non-white woman is suffering from this, they just can't be you know, diagnosed with, with this disease also. This is completely ignored. It is much, much worse for women of color who don't uh, present as the quote-unquote typical endometriosis patient. And it's not only that the disease is kind of invisible and is misdiagnosed in them, But there's a really long, dark history about this racist idea that Black women feel less pain. And that, you know, goes back to the times of American slavery. But there were surveys, modern surveys in like 2019, I believe, finding that many medical students still believe that Black women feel less pain physically. And so you can imagine how severe those consequences are if you're offering less pain management to women in general, but especially women of color. Mm -hmm. And you go into that also specifically um, uh, in uh, also experimenting um, with women, women of color, like basically taking advantage um, of of their, um, you know, like in the case if they have a certain disease and so on. And kind of you actually go into uh, the consent uh, side of things where there's actually no real consent of, uh, you know, working with scientists and kind of, uh, consenting for their body, for their uh, yeah, for their bodies to be used for for medical science to understand, and a lot of 
um, uh, findings, a lot of observations were made, but then they're um, they're not really on the map. And actually, you do kind of bring them on the map. So, like maybe you can talk about this a little bit uh, about the research done in this way and uh, who were these women? They were actively participating also as researchers. Right. So. Just through my own research, I had kind of made note of how often this happened, where researchers were experimenting on vulnerable populations, um, and often it was in the realm of what I was looking at, which was like gynecology and sexually transmitted diseases. So people are very familiar, I think, with the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, where Black men who had syphilis were told they were getting treatment and were left to just suffer um, and be studied with no consent. Um, And another big one is the early trials of the contraceptive pill in Puerto Rico, where women were not told the full side effects that these pills could have. And these trials were done there so that American women uh, could then get this pill and know it was safe later. But really, this is a trend that goes back to the beginnings of modern gynecology. Um, So I think what you're referring to is, um, again, a really dark history that I realized had to be addressed in a book about the history of gynecology and the female body. And it goes back to James Marion Sims, who I think today is pretty notorious as um, a racist slaveholding doctor who experimented on enslaved women, some of whom he rented out from other farms. And by doing that, he got American gynecology on the map and he helped develop tools like the speculum. Um, So he was trying to fix a problem uh, that was fistulas uh, in women that come from a long or painful childbirth. So these abnormal openings between the vagina and the anus or bladder. Um, So he was doing these incredibly painful experimental procedures on them um, to see what would work essentially. And yeah, what I chose to focus on in the book was um, an argument that was by a really thorough um, historian, Deirdre Cooper Owens, um, who investigated all the documents from this time. And she found that the women that were being experimented on. Um, The ones whose names we know are Betsy and Arca and Lucy. And they were actually really, really skilled and informed in these medical practices. And they, she concluded they actually knew more about fistulas in this time than probably any other doctor. And at one point his white surgical assistants quit. And it seems that he basically had them serve as surgical assistants and nurses and train in all of that medical practice. And it's likely that when they went back to their farms, they also served as nurses and midwives. So I wanted to kind of highlight their contribution and agency in this story, because that's definitely left out in this narrative of a heroic male anatomist who makes discoveries and the female body is just the territory on which he makes these discoveries, um, which is just so wrong and twisted. 
Yeah, thanks a lot, actually, for really putting that back again uh, on the map and so that we uh, know their names and we know what's what's going on. As you said, it's, it's not uh, somehow we also uh, believe these stories is that this single man alone, you know, like made these discoveries and basically everybody he experimented on or everybody who supported this research uh, uh, effort somehow is completely forgotten and then it's a magician doing all of these things alone right right and literally you know there were many statues um raised to him and none for the women who were part of this enterprise um and it was the historian deirdre who really suggested um calling them the mothers of gynecology as he is often called the father of gynecology and raising a monument to them so i think she really did that uh, deep archival work of putting them on the map. Mm-hmm. That's really, really amazing that we're very thankful that, that actually she did that and now we know about them. Um, I would like to um, here go to another man that um, kind of, uh, as much as he has helped us understand how evolution works, also did a bad one for the <laughs> for the female <laughs> reproduction reproductive system and uh, and genitalia and so on. So uh, you also come to Darwin, especially uh, talking about uh, vaginas. Uh, so <laughs> so for someone who advocated natural selection and all these pressures to shape, uh, you know, organs, he thought actually women were quite passively just sitting ducks, basically. Mm, yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned ducks because ducks and duck genitalia play into that chapter a lot. Um, um, but yeah, I, uh, I I kind of feel bad taking Darwin off his pedestal. Not that I'm the one who initially did that, um, but I, I grew up really worshiping Darwin. I come from a very science-minded family. My dad's a physicist. My mom's a doctor. My stepmom's a molecular geneticist. And I grew up reading Origin of Species, and I had like a Darwin necklace with like the evolution of man, like on it, which I've had to give away since. Um, But yeah, like he was absolutely brilliant in the kind of connections he made and how wide ranging his curiosity was. And so it was really um, striking to see how uncurious he was when it came to um, not just female genitalia, but females in general. Um, And going back to origin of species, like I would see sentences such as said, like, the male has grown more intelligent and more powerful than the female in every species. And like women have maybe become more beautiful um, in the human case. Uh, But he would just say like females were passive, chaste, kind of this Victorian woman um, archetype and males were aggressive and they had to evolve to be stronger and smarter in their pursuit of females. So he was clearly working from, uh, a fairly Victorian model. And that really prevented him from looking at all the ways that females are active, dynamic, and making active choices or decisions, or or sometimes their biology is. Um, and that does go all the way down to their genitalia and the fact that there are really diverse and astonishing uh, vaginas across the animal kingdom. And I spoke at length with a biologist who is studying these genitals, who's kind of become the mapper of vaginas um, across the animal world and made it like her career. Um, And she's finding that these omissions that Darwin left out, but then that 
centuries of biologists afterwards also overlooked or were kind of too prudish to talk about um, had left all of this unexplored territory, not to call females territory, um, but it was just like all these discoveries that were just waiting to happen. So maybe we can also briefly discuss about the duck genitalia. It's a really fascinating story. Yeah, I feel like this one actually made it to like mainstream pop culture. Um, it was, I think, on like The Daily Show. Um, so a lot of people learned through various memes and culture that ducks had pretty horrifying penises that um, are these corkscrews that are really long and kind of explode out into the female. Uh, and one very important thing that this scientist I mentioned, um, Patty Brennan, did was say, huh, well, genitalia work together and the sexes co-evolve. So if the penis looks like this, what does the vagina look like? And nobody had asked that, amazingly. Unbelievable. <laughs> it seems like pretty obvious. <laughs> um, and so when she did like a very careful dissection of duck genitals, she found that... Um, As you might expect, um, it was an equally complicated, complex structure. I think she described it as maze-like. Sometimes there were these blind alleyways where it looked like sperm would go to die or be stored, um, depending on the situation. And basically that the duck's female, the duck's body was able to exert control over the genetics of her offspring in ways that no one had considered. And even if we're not, it's, you know, it's very hard to determine behavior out of anatomy. So we can't know for sure how it's working, but it was clear that there was complicated stuff happening. And this was not just a passive um, interaction. That's really fascinating. So um, I, <laughs> I'm really shocked to see also Darwin himself has observed certain, um, you know, animals where, <laughs> where actually like it, they do things that doesn't fit into, into his, uh, you know, Victorian woman fairy tale and continue to ignore, ignore the situation. So from this, I, I was just thinking, this is actually something that is called um, in, in science, what we call a cherry picking. So like also, if you see some data that doesn't fit to your hypothesis, uh, you know, You're not supposed to do that as scientists. I hope a lot of scientists don't do, but then sometimes like this is actually a criticism, like, okay, this looks like a cherry pick data. And to see actually basic the whole female part of his research is complete cherry picking experiment. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was also surprised. Like I was pretty ha happy with some of the sleuthing that I did on that chapter. Um, because I had to go get some like Latin and German speakers to help me out. So I found out that what he did in these instances where he did mention a vulva, usually of a monkey, he would have a footnote in Latin or German that it seemed like he didn't think lay people could read. So only like the educated men could read it. And so it was a little bit less scandalous because, you know, he was um, at that point, like this really respected gentleman scientist of England. Um, and he couldn't get away with impropriety. Um, so, but if you look at those footnotes, he will observe like faithfully uh, what he saw. And in one, he said he saw a, um, it was like a red and swollen vulva of a spider monkey and that a female monkey was 
showing it off um, and displaying it. And the male monkeys were banging on the glass, getting really excited. So there was obviously like something very active happening that the female had a driving desire or urge. Um, And I think he literally said at that point, like, that was kind of weird because I usually notice that the colorful and majestic traits like the peacock's tail only were present in males. But in every other way, this fits my hypothesis. So moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really unbelievable. (laughs) And I mean, again, from Darwin, you make this um, comparison, which I I truly appreciated. So uh, nobody questioned that he would have these biases and his writings, his findings. Nobody would think that this would be shaped through this lens. Uh, Yet you actually cite John uh, Rothgarden, uh, so and uh, that she was kind of all oh, like always um, maybe you can talk about her research a little bit and then also she was basically because uh, of her own experiences kind of um, uh, blamed like oh like of course you have your experience and then basically this is what you project on whereas this is something like all these you know very famous men have been doing for a long long time yeah exactly this goes back to how the myth that science comes from an objective place Mm -hmm. really blocks us from realizing that everyone brings something to the science and that's not always bad, but we can acknowledge that without completely canceling them um, or discarding what they had to say, but merely contextualizing it. Um, So Joan Roughgarden is an evolutionary biologist who I spoke to about genital evolution and she wrote a book called Evolution's Rainbow that really like opens the box on Darwinian heterosexual mating and um, really hammers home the point that his idea of sexual selection depended on these very heterosexual Victorian norms about um, marriage between a man and a woman and uh, sex that produces babies. And she realized that actually there's so many types of sexual behavior and sexual diversity among all sorts of animals. Uh, There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of like homosexual pairings and sexual behavior that doesn't lead to reproduction. So what can account for this, especially if we think that Darwinian evolutionary forces are behind everything? Um, So she made a point that I think Darwin could not have seen, even though it seems very simple now, which is that genitals are not just for reproduction. Um, genitals throughout different species are used um, for symbolizing, like they can be colorful, they can stand out, they can be scent marking, they can be used for um, different troops to signal to each other, they can be used for peacemaking and social bonding, like among dolphins and bonobos, which are very famous for that. Um, And they you know, quite obviously are used for pleasure in many, many species. Um, And that in no way needs to lead to reproduction in order to be selected for or important in an animal's social life. So um, she had some intriguing ideas about if this is pleasurable and if we're seeing so much of this kind of sexual behavior, then maybe the genitals partially evolved to facilitate certain types of sexual behavior. Um, And in the case of bonobos, um, there were very significant clitorises that were located in a very good location for female genital genital rubbing. And other primatologists had also pointed this out 
and noted it and said, you know, we can't say for sure exactly what this evolved for. Nobody can, but it would make sense. And it's a hypothesis that would have been completely overlooked and would have been avoided completely um, by Darwin and his followers. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is really quite fascinating research. And from there, I would like to also discuss a little bit. Um, I also was happy to learn about um, uh, new research um, around um, female reproductory organs and, uh, for example, the vaginal microbiome. So microbiomes are really a hot topic, uh, gut microbiome really being the, uh, you know, the helm of, um, of, this, of this new research. Everybody's wondering, oh, what I eat, how it affects um, the microbiome there, what is a healthy microbiome. So um, knowing this from gut, I mean, uh, vagina also uh, basically hosts quite a lot of um, different organisms. So uh, how uh, in-depth is vaginal microbiome researched? Um, yeah, I would say it is a bit behind the gut, um, but it is definitely a huge new area of interest. And I think it's becoming widely recognized that this is a key protection um, against disease and disbalance. And it's really like an extension of your immune system. Many researchers described it to me as. Um, so there are millions and millions of organisms down there and There are bacteria, fungi, um, and uh, and viruses, but um, there are kind of these keystone species I like to think of them as that really sculpt the ecosystem. And in many cases, that's called lactobacillus. It's a bacterial genus that um, turns sugars into lactic acid, and the same group of bacteria turns milk into cheese and yogurt. Um, but the ones in the vagina are specially adapted and they keep it like mildly acidic, like a glass of red wine is my favorite comparison. Um, and so they're really, really important for maintaining your health and um, your homeostasis, basically. And it, there's a lot of evidence that fluctuations and changes, um, which are common and normal, pretty much like you will get fluctuations with um, hormone shifts and menstruation. And unfortunately, um, ejaculate has a pretty high pH and it can disrupt the acidity of the vagina. Um, so all this stuff happens and some people seem to bounce back better than others and other people tend to get infections, um, which are different types of bacteria coming in that you don't want. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is if we can manipulate this in some way or at least better understand what's going on and what's providing the protection and how, um, then we can improve reproductive health for quite a lot of people. Mm -hmm. One example that you also mentioned is um, a transfer of, of uh, microbiome. So like a, just like an organ transplant. I mean, this is done uh, for gut microbiomes as well. I was very fascinated to learn from your book that this was also experimentally tested actually for vaginal microbiome. Yeah, that's right. There's been one pilot test so far that I'm aware of in Israel. Um, it was very small. But yeah, I mean, when I read about this, I was like, duh, this seems really logical. Fecal transplants were a game changer. Um, and they were mostly in the beginning um, to get rid of C. difficile, which is a deadly disease. Um, so people were willing to do anything. Um, and in the case of vaginal health, uh, What I heard from many gynecologists is that 
funders and even scientists don't value um, quality of life and sexual health in women as much as they do a lot of other types of diseases. So there's not as much motivation to do what seemed like a drastic treatment. Um, and to many had an ick factor was how it was described to me. So a fecal transplant at first, I think was very um, shocking to people. Uh, but we got over that because it worked really well. It prevented a deadly disease and it had a lot of potential. Um, but the vaginal transplants are taking longer, it seems like, because they have more hurdles to overcome in a way. They have an ick factor about vaginas in general, um, and then an underappreciation of the seriousness of sexual health. Um, but yeah, so like I said, they did do one pilot trial that was promising, and now there's a much bigger trial happening connected to Massachusetts General Hospital, um, where I believe it's underway now. It was um, per delayed for a long time because of the pandemic, of course. Um, but the idea is to find out how to shift the microbiome reliably and what might be a really good state for the most women, um, and one day potentially synthetically mimic this. So you're not actually transferring one woman's fluids to another, but a mixture that has been kind of optimized. Mm -hmm. It is quite fascinating. I'm just wondering, so you've looked into so many different scientific um, uh, studies and research and talked to a lot of scientists. What was for you the most shocking thing? That's either because people did not research it very well or you found the science fascinating. So oh, that I leave up to you. But what was it like? Wow. This is crazy. Actually, when you first started asking that question, I was worried because I, you're right. Like I, I feel like I set out to write like eight books and that if I was smart, I would have just chosen one of these chapters. And halfway through, I was like, why did I think I could do eight different fields? Um, but there's one kind of area of new research that has never ceased to shock me since I found out about it and getting other people's reactions on it and um, uh, their assumptions about it is fascinating. And that is ovarian regeneration. So I, early on in researching the book, I was like, hmm, what's new in ovaries and eggs? Like we all heard the same thing that you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have. Um, and that's kind of cool because when you're a fetus floating in your mom's womb, she's carrying three generations in one in a way because you already have all your eggs in your ovaries as a fetus. Um, and I was like, that's wild and cool. And then these researchers in Boston were finding actually there are stem cells in the ovary and they're probably giving rise to new eggs. And that absolutely overturns one of the biggest tenets of reproductive biology. That's been, well, it turns out that assumption only goes back to about 1950. Um, but since then, it's been canon. And, you know, when I was looking into like IVF and reproductive technologies and egg freezing, that all revolves around the idea that you have these precious finite resources that go away with time. So you need to preserve them to the utmost. Um, but you can't make more of them. And they're finding that's probably not true. There's a lot of unknowns still. Um, the stem cells have been identified pretty well, and that's actually beginning to be printed in reproductive biology textbooks, which is huge because textbooks are very slow to change. Um, but the controversy is, what are they doing? What is their function in an actual human body? Because a lot of the research has been done on cells that have been removed from the body um, in vitro, not in vivo. 
So we can't say for sure that they're making new eggs throughout someone's reproductive life, um, or are they responding to trauma, injury, chemotherapy, um, and only making more in certain cases. So that's what's being looked into now, but I am really eager to find out what happens. Um, like It's like obvious that the possibilities for reproductive technology and people's reproductive lives are enormous, but... For me, a woman who might not have kids, it also just changes the way I think about my body, my ovaries, aging, um, and just makes me view my body as more resilient and regenerative um, than I think the cultural framework has taught me. Because we have definitely gotten this narrative of you have these degenerating organs and they're kind of these egg timers that are flipped upside down and eventually they run out. And I don't like to think about my body that way. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of these moments where my, I related to my body differently um, after reading some of these new theories coming out that I'd never thought about. Yeah, that was really fascinating to find out as well. And maybe, and I really hope so, that once this research is more developed, you write a whole book about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that there are like great books being written about the frontiers of reproductive technology. Um, and that's a completely like fascinating field. Um, I try to be careful not to put too much stock in new tech. Um, I got my start as a journalist at Wired, which is kind of like the magazine of the future. And like, we used to joke that every 10 years, you'd have a cover with flying cars on it. And we'd be like, flying cars are here next year. Um, so like, I have a healthy amount of skepticism about like the promises of startups and new technology. Um, but I do like to ask how they change our understanding. Um, and what they mean for us now. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, I would like to also close and ask one last question. So what uh, next can we read from you? What are your next projects? Uh, I mean, I, I definitely had so many untold stories and stuff that was left on the cutting room floor from this book. Um, so I'm now starting to freelance a lot of articles on reproductive and sexual health. Um, I usually write for the New York Times Science Section, Scientific American, um, places like that. But I think the theme I'm looking into is new science about what we call the reproductive system. So vulva, clitoris, vagina, ovaries, uterus, that doesn't necessarily have to do with childbirth and baby making. Um, and I really realized in reporting this book that these organs are crucial to your overall health throughout your whole life, not just when you're pregnant. Um, the ovaries are a great example that the hormones that they produce support the functioning of your whole body, your blood, your bones, your brain. And that has been really overlooked. There's been a really historical focus on fertility research. So I'm interested in looking at some of the stuff that's sometimes more taboo, like sexuality research, um, but also just kind of more all-encompassing of more types of bodies. Um, and, and I really have found that the more we find about the female body, the more we fill in these gaps, the more we're learning about all types of bodies. That sounds really, really interesting. And I'm really looking forward to reading uh, all of these nice projects when they when they come to fruition. Me and too. <laughs> thanks a lot, Rachel. This has been great and very interesting discussion and a very interesting book. Oh, thank you so much, Sine. This has been a great conversation and thanks for such thoughtful questions.